Well, good morning. Can I give you all a very warm welcome to Brighton Road this morning to our communion service. Thank you for joining us here. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. No one has ever seen God. But John's Gospel says that the only Son, who is truly God and is closest to the Father, he has shown us what God is like. God is revealed in Jesus. And William's going to help us understand that. He's going to paint in the cross that's on the, on the board here. William, thank you. Do you want to paint inside the, the outline of the cross for us, please? And we'll see what happens when you do. Just paint all the way across. Just paint, just fill in the cross, that's all, yeah. Okay, you're just going to do that anyway. <laughs> you carry on. Oh, just, just do the letters now, it's all right. <laughs> the, one, the last letter at the bottom? Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Jesus reveals God as love. And he does so through the cross. It's in the cross that we see God is love. And only there, only there do you find the God of love. You don't find the God of love anywhere else but in Jesus. We're going to celebrate who Jesus is by reading out Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. I'm going to ask us to read individually a line at a time. So if you would like to contribute to our worship by standing up and reading the lines on the screen, stand up and we will bring a microphone to you. William will bring Louise's mic. I've got a microphone. Or Sue have got a microphone here. And you can lead us in worship by saying the line that's on the screen. And we'll work our way through Colossians 1 like this. If you'd like to read the line, please stand up and we'll bring a microphone to you to read the line. Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the firstborn Son, superior to all created things. Through him, God created everything in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers and authorities. God created the whole universe through him and for him. Christ existed before all things and in union with him all things have their proper place. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from the dead in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. 
for it was by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the Son, then God decided to bring the whole universal back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. At one time, you were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought. But now, by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends in order to bring you holy, pure and faultless into his presence. Can I invite you to all to stand and we sing together, Come, people of the risen King.
Now I'd like to stay standing and we'll read Psalm 100 responsively. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. My Jesus, my Saviour, Lord, there is none like you. Promises grace to all who put their trust in Christ as Lord and as Saviour. What wonder of grace is this?
Just take a moment to be aware that we are in the presence of God. Jesus doesn't just make God visible so that we see God as a God of love. Through Jesus, God is here in these moments. And through Jesus, God himself is available to you. If you accept Jesus and put your faith in him, then God himself makes you his child. All who receive Jesus and believe in him have the right to become God's children. The promise of the reality of God made available to us through Jesus Christ, his Son. You unravel me with a melody.
invite you to be seated. There's an opportunity for youngsters to go upstairs now to BRBK if you're going up. God bless you as you do have a great time in your group. Thank you for joining us for the first part of our service today. We've talked about God making us his children as we turn and put our trust in Christ. James has been worshipping with us for the past few weeks, months with his mum. And he's going to come and share his story with us of how he came to faith, how he crossed the line to being a child of God. That's an impressive um, booklet you've got there, James. You're going to give us the naughty version of this, are you? So preparing this, um, I, I, I've wrote it out a couple of times. But I think that God's revealed to me that my main obstacle to faith has been my fear of ridicule. Um, and it continues to be, unfortunately, um, in, my, in my walk. But I'll say how I came to faith. I was an atheist for 50 years. I prided myself on my facility with logic and my understanding of science. And I couldn't accept what I saw was an outdated fantasy. Um, but yes, and the other block which I've written here is the fear of being ridiculed. However, I had a very close friend who was a committed Christian and we'd meet every fortnight for lunch, discuss science and have, have light-hearted conversations about politics of the day and such. I couldn't fathom his belief, but he had a good life and he hadn't com compromised at all on his integrity and on his thirst for truth. So I was ready for Christianity, but I couldn't. But I needed a justification to overcome this fear of ridicule. Uh, it takes us to 10th of March 2011. I was listening to a radio broadcast of In Our Time by Melvin Bragg. The subject was free will, and one of the speakers, Professor Galen Strawson, put forward an argument that convinced me that we can't possibly have free will. At this I panicked. That would make me not much more than a biological robot. I hated that. My mind went into overdrive to find something positive from this totally unexpected situation and I hit upon a solution. If there is any amount of free will, then it goes completely against any logic in fact, nature as I know it. Thus, by my definition, it requires supernature, a supernatural force. So, if there is free will, then I have my justification. On the other hand, if there is no free will, then everything is either predetermined or random. Everything, including my beliefs. So, if I ended up believing in God, it was simply predetermined or random. And I certainly don't deserve humiliation or ridicule for that. I also reckon we couldn't tell if we have free will or not. So the result was I had my justification. I no longer had to fear ridicule, and I chose to believe in God. So that's the clever part, if you like. Which, um, but uh, it's invited action. At this stage, I could have chosen any spiritual path, but I chose Christianity because it's challenging, radical, and active. So what next? I prayed, I got on my knees, and simply asked, what now? And immediately, 
I've got a tailor-made answer. But that was getting me over the line, and since then I've been putting into practice what Jesus teaches, and it's really enriched my life. Still a long battle, and still a long way before I get that childlike faith that Jesus describes. And I'm longing for that. So thank you. Can we pray for James? Lord, you promised that your spirit would guide us into truth, and thank you that you've done that for James. Thank you for your gift to him of free will. Thank you for bringing him to the point where he could choose to follow you, and thank you for his mind and his, his, his wisdom. And as he, has, as he seeks deeper understanding from the position of faith, would you continue to guide him into your truth and show him how to live for you? Show us to live the kind of way that he talked about being challenging and radical and active. May your spirit rest upon him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, James. Bless you. Great to have you with us. And your mum as well. Thank you. Praise to Christ, the Lord incarnate.
be seated. And Val's going to come and lead us in our prayers for concern. Thank you, Val. We read in the book of Hebrews these words. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, thank you that you invite us to come boldly to your throne of grace. Father, thank you that you've made yourself known to us. Almighty God has made himself known to us as Father, as Lord, as Saviour. Father, we recognise that we live in a very broken world over these past years and months and now days, we see all around us hopelessness, helplessness, despair. Lord, we we are reminded that you told us that these things would happen. Lord, you didn't hold back. You didn't say that everything would be fine in the end. No, Lord, you told us that there would be wars, there would be earthquakes, there would be famines, there would be pestilence. You didn't hide that truth from us. But Lord, you invite us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find help in time of need. And Lord, we pray for those broken areas of our world at this time. We think especially this week of Turkey and Syria and the despair and hopelessness in in those places. We think of Ukraine and the African continent where there are conflicts raging. Lord, where there is hopelessness and helplessness. But Lord, we ask, Lord, boldly that you would mobilise, Lord, even your angelic armies in those places, Father. We feel feel emboldened to ask of you that you would bring your angels into those situations. But Lord, also we ask that you will mobilise believers in those places, that there will be those who will come in and bring physical, tangible help to the people in need, but also will speak the words of the gospel and bring hope to people who have lost all hope. Lord, we ask in these days that miracles will happen. Lord, that where things seem out of control, that you will bring control, things back into into alignment with your purposes. And Lord, we pray also for our own country. Lord, we're not going through stuff that these other nations are going through, but Lord, there's still despair in our own land. You tell us to pray for those in authority, and we do so, Lord. We pray for those in government and in local government, those who make decisions on behalf of this nation. Lord, we ask that righteous decisions will be made and we pray that you will overrule. If things, if decisions are about to be made that are not right, Lord, that you yourself would overrule. 
And Lord, we pray also on a local level. Lord, we pray for this town of Horsham. And Lord, there are those in our own town who despair and do not have hope. And Lord, we ask that this fellowship might continue to bring hope and help to those who are hopeless around about us. Lord, we thank you that you put it in the heart of, of people to do the Saturday kitchen, Lord. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that work. Lord, we ask that that work will continue to provide food for people's stomach, but also, Lord, that they, it might provide food for people's souls, that they might find you through the ministry of this church and in other areas too, Lord. We pray that you will use this fellowship to meet the needs, the spiritual needs of those around us. And Lord, we pray now for our own individual needs. Lord, we, each of us have stuff going on in our own lives, Lord, that only you may be aware of. But Lord, we worship you, almighty God, all-powerful. Lord, new every morning are your mercies, great is your faithfulness toward us. And Lord, you will split the sea before us. Lord, you will make a way in the wilderness where there seems to be no, no way at the moment. Lord, all things work together for good for those who love you. How we praise your holy name. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2 reading verses 12 to 17. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Val and Robin, thank you both very much. Okay, let's put that passage in context so we understand what's going on as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul has some explaining to do. Twice he's told the church he's going to come and pay them a visit, and twice he's changed his mind. And this lack of credibility, or this, of this lack of reliability on his part has undermined his credibility at a time when his relationship with the church was already under quite a bit of strain. 
In fact, things had got so bad that instead of coming to see them in person, Paul sent his friend Titus, someone who knew the church well, to see if he could smooth things over. Here in his letter to them, Paul tells the Corinthians that he'd hoped that Titus would meet him at Troas, tell him how the church was doing and set his mind at rest. But Titus didn't show up. And this left Paul in such a disturbed state of mind that he couldn't bear to stay in Troas any longer, even though large numbers of people were turning to Christ as Paul shared the gospel with them there. Even though the gospel had an open door, Paul was like a cat on hot bricks. He couldn't settle. So he turned his back on what God was doing in Troas and went on to Macedonia in the hope that he might meet Titus on the way. The subtext of Paul's message to the church in Corinth is, look, everything I do, I do it for you. When I changed my mind about coming to visit you, your well-being was paramount in that decision. I didn't want another major damaging head-to-head confrontation with you. I didn't come for your sake. And you're not the only ones I messed around. I walked out on what God was doing in Troas. And again, I did that for your sake. Because my love and concern and distress about you was so great, I couldn't cope any longer without news of you. All this time, he tells the church, you have been number one on my priority list. I love you that much. And actually, Paul seems to suggest it doesn't matter where he was where he went when it came to sharing the good news of Jesus. Whether he was in Troas, whether he was in Macedonia, made no difference because everywhere he went, people heard the gospel through him. Everywhere he went, people encountered Christ through him. It's a bit like he had BO. I mean, if someone talking to you has BO, you know about it. You can't avoid it. And if you were talking to Paul... You knew about Christ. You couldn't avoid it. Maybe aftershave would be a better appropriate image to use. But it was unavoidable. You encountered Paul. You smelt Christ. Everywhere he went, people could not avoid the aroma of Christ. And although to some people he met, that smell was like the stench of death. For others, it was the sweet smell of life. So Paul here compares the aroma of Christ not to body odour, but to the fragrant incense that was burnt in a Roman triumphal procession. When a general returned victorious from battle and entered the city with his his army and, and, and the troops and the incense bearers and the captives, there was always incense being burned on that occasion. It was a feature of such parades. Your sense of smell was as fully engaged as what you were seeing and what you were hearing as the parade went past. And probably Paul probably describes himself here as someone who is carrying incense in the parade. Everywhere he went in the procession, you smelt the incense. He carried the, the sense of victory everywhere he went. Well, to the victors, the incense was the smell of life. But to the doomed prisoners at the back of the parade, the spoils of war, the incense just smelt disgusting. 
because it was inextricably associated with their own inevitable impending deaths. And the thing about incense is, you can't avoid the smell of it. You can shut your eyes so you can't see something, you can stop your ears so you can't hear something, but sooner or later you've got to breathe. And when you breathe, you smell whatever is there. So Paul says, look, I'm like the incense burner in a victory parade. And the good news of Jesus is the incense that I burn. Everywhere I go, people encounter Christ through me as surely as they are living and breathing. You met Paul, you met Jesus. Everywhere he went, he spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And for those who embraced it, and welcomed it, and accepted it. It was the sweet smell of salvation. If they reject it, then the good news of Jesus becomes like the stench of death to them. So when you put on your aftershave, or your deodorant, or your perfume, or whatever it is, and you go out, and people smell that aroma, ask God to enable them to detect Christ in you, and through you, that it would be as noticeable to them as whatever scent it is you use. And if you want to dig deeper into this topic later this week, there's material for reflection, which you can quite access quite easily through the homepage on our website. And wherever Paul went, he took Christ with him. Michael, as you head out to New Zealand, God willing, tomorrow, or whenever it's going to be now, to work with those affected by the floods there, may, may God go with you. We pray for safe journeys for you. Pray that God would give you open doors to share Jesus and sensitivity to God's Spirit with those you meet. May the aroma of Christ be known through you. And may God lead you in his triumphal procession wherever you go, spreading the fragrance of Christ to everyone you meet. God bless you. Give you a safe journey while you're gone. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul asks. Who is equal to such a task? Who is up to doing this? We often think of Paul as being quite big-headed, really, but actually he was well aware of his own personal inadequacy when it came to bearing the gospel. He had been the first to take the good news of Jesus to Corinth. He said he came amongst them with weakness and in fear and with much trembling. He was absolutely terrified of being in that city, yet God used him to bring people to Christ and to plant a church there. People responded to the good news that Paul shared with them as he worked in his workshop, that Christ had died for the wrong things they'd done. They turned and put their trust in him. They invited him as risen Lord to take charge of their disordered lives. And the church there had been born through Paul's witness and testimony. The aroma of Christ was apparent there in his workshop as he made tents and talked to people who came into his shop. But since Paul had moved on, other people had come in on the back of his ministry. People more skilled at public speaking. People who'd dazzled the Corinthians with their rhetorical skill. People actually who looked down on Paul, poured scorn on Paul because he earned his own keep through the menial trade of making tents. That was degrading, that was a bit base, there was nothing honourable or praiseworthy or commendable in that. The 
these newcomers declared that those who preach the gospel should really live by faith. After all, Jesus has said the labourer is worthy of his hire, and surely the value of the message is tied to what you're prepared to pay for the privilege of listening to it. The mark of a true apostle of Christ was one who lived on the basis of preaching the gospel and, and, and receiving the reward for doing that. They felt that if the message was good enough, then people should pay for the privilege of hearing you. After all, people paid to listen to the great philosophers of the day, didn't they? So why shouldn't they pay to listen to the good news of Jesus? It was a sign of faith on their part, a sign of honour, a sign of the value that people placed on the message that they were proclaiming. Paul, making tents, that degraded the message in the eyes of these people. And Paul was utterly dismayed and appalled by this. He felt called to present the gospel free of charge. That was his privilege. To put no barriers in the way of anybody so that anybody and everybody could hear the gospel of Christ. He didn't want to be beholden to anyone as he shared the good news of Jesus. He said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He had no choice. Whoever you were, wealthy or poor, he would share Jesus with you. And he criticises those who preach the word of God for profit. He describes them as hawkers of God's word. Hucksters, backstreet peddlers who rip off their customers by charging inflated prices. And there were those who criticised the philosophers for, for charging people for the privilege of listening to what they said. Lucian, a few years after Paul, criticises those who practice sophistry. These philosophers sell their teaching like tavern keepers, and most of them mix their wine with water and misrepresent it. In utter contrast, Paul says, when we speak, when we speak, we speak in absolute sincerity in the sight of God who sent us to you. I have to say, whatever, whenever I read what Paul says about preaching the gospel free of charge, I always find it a bit disconcerting and challenging personally because, let's face it, I make my living by preaching the gospel of Christ. My stipend comes out of your bank accounts and I'm very grateful to you for that. But it's actually quite an uncomfortable position to be in, if I'm honest. It brings with it an acute sense of responsibility. It's incumbent upon me to declare the whole counsel of God, to share with you what I feel God gives me to say, and to do so with all sincerity in the sight of God, whether you like it or not. So if you are a major financial supporter of the church, I'm deeply grateful to you for that, but the amount you give doesn't give you any extra clout. It mustn't, and it won't. So one of the safeguards built in is that actually I have no idea who gives what to the church, and I don't want to know either. But to put it bluntly, you don't pay me to tell you what you want to hear. First and foremost, I'm accountable to God for what I say and how I say it. So thank you for your support, for your generosity to the church. And we are self-financing as a church, so we need the gifts that you bring. 
But first and foremost, I'm accountable to God and not to those who pay for my wages. And Paul came to Corinth not to make money out of them, but because he was sent by God. So periodically, I have to ask myself the question, why am I here? After 13 years, some of you might be asking, why is he still here? It's not because Brighton Road is a great place to be, although it is. It's not because being here is a cushy number, because it isn't. But it's because I came in response to a clear calling of God to be here, and to date, God has not yet released me from that. He may do it at some point in the future, of course, but for the time being, this is still where I feel it ought to be. And so as someone sent to you by God, like Paul, I'm commissioned to speak to you before God in all sincerity. That's my calling and my task for as long as God, as long as God wants me here. But that's not just something that's incumbent upon me as minister at Brighton Road. We are all called to be conscious that every word we say, God hears. Everything we do, God sees. All of our life is lived before God, in the sight of God, in the presence of God. There's a technical term for that used by clever people, coram deo. It's, it's the, used in the Latin translation of 2 Corinthians 2.17. It comes up 36 other times in the Vulgate translation of the Bible. It's the kind of phrase you might stumble across in a piece of Christian writing and think, what on earth does that mean? Well, it's a kind of pithy slogan for those in the Reformed tradition about living the whole of life in conscious awareness of the presence of God. Who I am, what I do, what I say, how I live, everything, everything I do, I do before God. It has profound implications, as R.C. Sproul spells out. His words are worth repeating at some length. He said, to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. And to live all of life, Coram Deo, is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. It is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction and chaos. The Christian who compartmentalises his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. And the big idea is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. That means if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, or homemaker, Coram Deo, 
then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills their vocation. It means that David was as religious when he obeyed God's call to be a shepherd as he was when he was anointed with the special grace of kingship. It means that Jesus was every bit as religious when he worked in his father's carpenter shop as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Integrity is where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It's a pattern that functions the same basic way in church and out of church. It's a life that's open before God. It's a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It's a life lived by principle, not expediency, by humility before God, not defiance. It's a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. Coram Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of God, in a conscious awareness that God is there. It's how I'm called to speak every time I stand here in front of you at Brighton Road on a Sunday morning. I speak in sincerity as one sent from God, speaking before God, accountable to God. But wherever you go this week, whatever motives, humanly speaking, there might be for being there, God places you there and you go as one placed there by God, called to be aware that you are there before God, called to speak words of sincerity before God, and called to bring the fragrance of the aroma of Christ in every place where you go, to everyone you meet. That's our calling and our privilege. Let's pray. Well, we sometimes pay lip service to the idea that you are omnipresent, that you are everywhere. thank you, thank you, that means there is no situation in which we find ourselves where you are not there, where your grace is not available to us, where your spirit does not rest upon us. Forgive us for those times where we shut you out of this segment of our lives. Enable us this coming week to live all of life before you, for you, in an awareness of your nearness, by the power of your spirit, help us to live Coram Deo, to live our lives honourably in your sight and through us to spread the knowledge of Christ to everyone we meet. For we ask it in his name. Amen.
Stand and sing together, Jesus, all for Jesus. Why give all of our lives to him? Because he gave his life for us, holding nothing back, loving us even to the point of death, taking upon himself our grief, our guilt, our pain, our sin, our mortality, standing in our place bearing our condemnation, dying our death, to redeem us from sin, to bring us out of death into life, to change us from being people alienated from God to being children of God. He held nothing back. And he asked us to hold nothing back in terms of dedicating our lives to him. This is a covenant meal. This is the place where we remember that Jesus' body was broken on the cross for us. His blood was shed on the cross for us. Putting us right 
with God through his death. Here we see the extent of God's commitment to us in the gift of his son. And here we express our answering response of commitment to God. We eat the bread to say, thank you, Lord, for dying for me. We drink the wine to say, thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood for me. And however weak or wavering our commitment, we say, Lord, I dedicate my life to you. And I eat this bread and wine not because we're good enough or because we've made it or secure, but because we need Jesus. We need a saviour. Paul said, this is good news. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them, he said. Christ Jesus came into this world to save you. So if you need redemption, if you need love, if you need life, forgiveness, this meal is for you this morning. God meets you where you are, as you are. And redeems you through his son. Because he loves you. Without limit. Without reserve. So let's pray. Jesus we are in awe of you. Of your readiness to take our place. We are all uncomfortably aware that all of our life is lived in plain sight of you and you see everything about us that is shameful or degrading or hopeless or unworthy of you. Our deeds, our words, our thoughts, our attitudes. There's nothing about us that you don't know. And despite that, Lord, thank you that you love us. Loving is enough to take all of that upon yourself. So we pray, Lord, that you would lift out of our lives everything that is unworthy of you and fill us instead with your spirit with your goodness. And thank you, Jesus, for making that possible. For your body broken as you died in our place. For your blood shed to wipe the slate clean. Give us a fresh start. And thank you, do that. Thank you that you do that because that's your grace. That's your love. And Jesus, we worship you this morning. Amen. This table is for anyone who puts their faith in Christ, however weak or feeble or ineffectual you might feel your faith might be. If, if Christ is the place where you want to put it, then this is for you. Because Jesus gave his life to redeem you. And he did it because you're not good enough. There is no one here whom Christ turns away. And we share this bread and wine because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, 
And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to those who were with him and said, Take, eat. This is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, given for you. It's a privilege to be able to eat the bread. We take it as we receive it and eat, remembering that Christ died for me. And being grateful for that. The body of Christ, given for you. Thanks be to God. After they'd eaten, Jesus took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Christ gave his life for you. Christ shares his life with you in this cup. We keep the cup so that we can drink together as a sign of our fellowship in Christ.
The blood of Christ was shed for you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Thank you for bringing us home. Thank you for making us yours. Amen. Let's close by standing to sing here the call of the kingdom. Share together in the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.